We looked at verses 1 through 6. Tonight we're going to begin again reading in verse 1, but we're going to continue going down to verse 12. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 12 of Genesis 39. This is the Word of God. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had, From the time that he made him overseer in his house, and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had, in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. Because of him, he had no concern about anything with the food he he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. I'm going to stop right there. Back in... Genesis 38, we saw how Joseph's brother, Judah, was a man of lust. Uh, We saw how he saw the daughter of Shua, and though she was not a woman that he should have taken to be his wife, his lust for her drove him to take her. Uh, We saw there that language of he saw and he took We saw this same lust get Judah into trouble when he saw Tamar dressed as a harlot. And rather than practicing self-control, acting rashly and foolishly, Judah gave in to his lust. Joseph here stands in stark contrast to his brother. When faced with sexual temptation, Joseph did what was right. Now, we too live in a time in which temptations to sexual immorality are everywhere. Pornography has found its way into every corner of our culture. Now you can hardly open up a newspaper without seeing some woman in her underwear. You drive down I-95 and you see the provocative billboards for various adult clubs. You try and check out at the grocery store and the magazines that greet you feature scantily clad models and provocative headlines. 
television, movies. These are obsessed with sex. So that today's form of comedy is simply to make a reference to anything sexual at all and watch people laugh in response. Advertisers have learned that sex sells. And I recently read that one-eighth of the Internet is now devoted to pornography, which is a multi-billion dollar industry. The latest fashions are often immodest, and it's sad to say that often even our Christian brothers and sisters wear clothing that is so short or so tight that it tempts towards impurity. Years ago, someone wanting to indulge in lust would have to bear the embarrassment of trying to buy a magazine or video at a convenience store. Today, even the most extreme forms of pornography can be accessed in seconds with our smartphones. On top of all this, maturity, self-control are looked down upon in our society. Young people are expected and sometimes even encouraged to give in to lustful thoughts and desires. They're often told to follow their hearts, and often that boils down to following their flesh. The latest music, movies, and television shows make sexual immorality among young people look normal, as though being different from that would be strange, weird, or even unhealthy. This is the culture in which we find ourselves in, a culture fraught with temptation. Now, our instinct is to say this is the worst it's ever been, and certainly technology has brought on new challenges. But the truth is that men and women are sinners, and wherever sinners cluster together, cultures of sin emerge. This is why cities have, throughout history, been bastions for immorality, We think our culture is at the height of debauchery. But according to historians, sexual immorality was probably even worse in the culture of ancient Rome than it is in our modern American culture. And then this week I read this quote. Listen to this. Was ever sodomy so committed in a Christian nation or so notoriously and frequently committed as by many palpable evidence it appears to be in and about this city. Is it not a wonder the patience of God has not consumed us in His wrath before this time? Was ever swearing, or blasphemy, or whoring, or drunkenness, or gluttony, or self-love, or covetousness at such a height as it is at this time here? That was Benjamin Keach describing London in 1701. So every generation seems to think that it is the worst. But the truth is, there is nothing new under the sun. The temptations that we struggle with today are at their root the same struggles that God's people have been fighting since the Garden of Eden. And Joseph stands as a remarkable young man who sets the example for us of standing for purity in the midst of a very difficult temptation. He was a man of integrity. Now, before we jump into our passage, I think it will be worthwhile for me to remind you of five biblical truths. Five biblical truths that will help us better approach these verses. We're speaking here about resisting sexual sin. And yet there's such confusion over these issues in our day 
that I thought it might be wise for us to lay a bit of a biblical foundation before we learn from Joseph. And so I want to give you five truths to set the foundation. And truth number one is this, and we need to be very clear about it. God is not against sexual intimacy. God is against perversions of sexual intimacy. God is not against sex. God created sex. There is a whole book in our Bible that celebrates the relationship of Christ and His church through pictures of intimacy, even sexual intimacy. The pleasure experienced in this kind of intimacy is meant to be a foretaste of heaven itself. And we need to be clear about this. God is pro-sex. He is not against it. He is against perversions of sexual intimacy that would take it away from the Christ-exalting context of marriage. Truth number two. God's standard in this regard is absolute purity. God's standard for us is absolute purity. In other words, we cannot think that God is against us looking at pornography, but okay with us thinking impure thoughts. We must not think that God would be angry if I committed adultery, but He's okay with me reading this trashy novel about adultery. The Bible gives us no room to compromise on this issue. There is to be no trace, not even the tiniest speck of sexual immorality in our lives. Ephesians 5.3 says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. The NIV translates the beginning of that verse this way. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. And that's the idea. We are to be absolutely pure. Our motives are to be honorable. Our thoughts, honorable. Our words, honorable. We are to be clean through and through. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now it is helpful for us to remember that God created man with all of man's aspects, including those sexual aspects of our lives. And God declared this creation very good. There is nothing sinful about the desire to have sex. Jesus came to earth as a man and was a true man. Jesus wasn't half a man. Jesus was a true man, complete with sexual urges and all. Jesus himself would certainly have noticed the beauty of the opposite sex. And this in no way made him sinful. He was pure through and through. It is not impure or sinful to find someone attractive or to notice someone's beauty or handsomeness. It is not impure or sinful to long for sexual intimacy within marriage, whether it's a present marriage or looking forward to the day when you are married. Also, being tempted sexually is not sin. Jesus himself was tempted in this way, for Hebrews tells us he was tempted in every way, just as we are. And so I want to be very clear on this because the church of Jesus Christ has messed up on this for the last 150 years. We've, we've done this badly. So we need to be very clear. 
Our sexual desires are a gift from God in which He is declaring His glory. Our sexual desires are meant to teach us a lesson that just as our bodies yearn for a loving partner, so our souls are to yearn for Christ as our bridegroom, the lover of our souls. To give your body to one who is not your spouse is to give yourself to one who has no covenant relationship with you, one who has not promised to take care of you or to love you. In the same way, to give your soul in love and worship to anyone or anything other than Christ is to throw your soul away, entrusting it to something that cannot care for it and will ultimately lead your soul to destruction. You see, sexual desire is a holy thing, a picture of the soul's longing for satisfaction. And when it is used rightly, it is a glorious, gospel-centered thing. Christ can be honored in our sexual lives. The issue is this. When the urges or the temptations come, how do you deal with them? If you are married, do you steer these desires into your marriage in a positive way so that you serve your spouse and bring much happiness into your marriage relationship? If you are unmarried, do you allow these urges to bring you to the place of prayer, asking God to give you a spouse with whom you can know the joy of this pleasure? Or, if it be not His will, letting this drive you to find your true contentment and satisfaction in Him and Him alone. Now, if these urges are not impure, and they're not, what is impure? Well, impurity and sexual immorality is when we take this good gift and misuse it. It is when we take for ourselves something that is not ours to take. There is a reason Ephesians 5 verse 3 puts impurity, sexual immorality, and covetousness beside each other all in the same category. There is a connection. To be sexually impure is to desire for yourself what God has not rightfully given you. Typically, it is the desire to make use of someone else's body whether it be a real body, whether it be a picture of someone on a screen, but to use that body for your own pleasure. That woman is not your woman. She is not your wife. And yet you use her in your mind or in reality as if she was, or vice versa, because women struggle with these temptations as well. You see, at its core, sexual sin is about covetousness, wanting what isn't rightfully ours. And we're going to talk more about this next week. But Joseph understood this. He understood the true nature of sexual sin, and it helped him immensely in fighting against it. Truth number three. Truth number three is this. God's motive in commanding absolute purity is love. God's motive in commanding absolute purity is love. The reason God commands us to be completely pure is because He loves us and He knows better than we do what is best for us. God is not against your joy. God is for your joy. We live in the here and now. God sees the big picture. And God understands infinitely better than we do that sexual purity is best both for our temporal happiness in this world and ultimately for our eternal 
happiness. There is a kind of joy that runs much deeper and a kind of joy that is much more precious than the pleasure found in sexual intimacy. And God's commands are given to us to be a lamp unto our feet and a light for our path. And this path will bring us into much greater blessing and joy than if we wander off of it into prohibited forests and deserts. How many Christian couples can testify of how their own sexual intimacy within marriage has been damaged or hurt because one or both partners engaged in sexual immorality before they were married. Friends, God knows what He's doing when He gives us this command. He is not being a killjoy. He is setting us up for greater joy, perhaps even greater sexual joy than we would have otherwise. And so trust God. Know that He loves you. He holds nothing back from you that is not for your good and your eternal, ultimate happiness. Number four. Number four. God's gift to us for this battle is Christ. God's gift to us for this battle is Christ. Sexual immorality is not an unforgivable sin. It is a foolish sin as all sins are, and even one moment of lust is enough for God to justly condemn us to hell. But through Jesus Christ and through real faith in Him, our sins of sexual immorality are truly taken away. Sometimes the earthly consequences of those sins will continue, but the spiritual consequences, and particularly the righteous wrath of God, are removed by Christ. At great cost, on the cross, Jesus bore the punishment our sins deserve, including our sexual sins. And so we must embrace the forgiveness that is in Christ. And friends, if God has forgiven us, then we are forgiven. And to act like we aren't is to live in unbelief against what God has clearly said. And I say that only because I have met too many believers still crippled by guilt from previous sexual sin. Church, if you are a believer in Christ, God has forgiven you, and you have no right to act as if He hasn't. Let go of the guilt and trust Him. But second, Christ is a precious gift in this ongoing fight against sexual sin, not only because He brings us forgiveness from the sin, but He brings us um, the strength to fight. Living in Christ's love is such a wonderful help in this battle. Giving ourselves to Christ's calls, fulfilling our callings for His namesake, is a huge help in this battle. Christ has given us His own Spirit. Christ has given us His Word to help in this battle. The account of Joseph that we're going to look at in just a few moments is a part of that great gift given to us by Christ so that we don't fight weaponless, we don't fight unequipped, but we fight in the strength that Christ provides. Well, finally, number five, this is the fifth truth, laying a foundation before we jump into the text, is that God's people need to speak boldly, clearly, and lovingly on these issues of sexuality. Let me say that again. God's people need to speak boldly, clearly, and lovingly on these issues of sexuality. The fact is, our culture is screaming false messages about sex into the eyes and ears of every one of us 
every day. There is danger in being bashful on this subject. If we play bashful, if we act as if talking about this subject is a negative thing, then we will fail to be faithful to God's calling. The Bible is not bashful on this subject. And faithful pastors and churches in the past were not bashful on this subject. Faithful fathers and mothers in the past talked openly and often with their children about these things. Now there is a place for privacy, especially when it comes to the particulars of a husband and a wife in their bedroom. And certainly this is an issue for sober-mindedness. But concerning the Bible's teaching on sexuality, we are to go public and we are not to back down. Today we have a generation of sexually confused Christians because their fathers and mothers fell into the trap of thinking that this subject was off limits. This world does not think this subject is off limits. And now many true believers are messed up in this area of their lives because they had their thinking and their behavior more shaped by the culture than by Christ. Now, I know this has been a long introduction, but again, I didn't want to jump straight into the discussion of fighting sexual sin without making sure that we understood these truths. And so as we turn our attention to Joseph, the rest of our study is going to have two parts. First, the temptation presented. And then second, the temptation resisted. Tonight, we're just going to look at the temptation presented. And then next week, we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of some practical lessons that we can learn about how Joseph resisted. So, the temptation presented. And to see it, look first at verses 6 and 7. Verses 6 and 7. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. Okay, so Joseph was a handsome man. Joseph's features made him attractive to women. Our world celebrates good looks. Our world makes much of good looks. But let's be clear. Good looks are often a snare that lure that person and others into sin. Anyone who is good-looking, I'll let you decide if you're in this category, but anyone who is good-looking has a special obligation to God to be particularly humble and particularly sober-minded. Because if you're not careful, you may not only do yourself great harm, but lead others down that same path. That is not to say that good looks are a curse. They are a blessing as well. For those of us who are not good-looking, it would be appropriate for us to occasionally thank God for our plainness because that has spared us certain greater temptations. Again, I'll let you decide what category you fall into. Note, by the way, that this account is a clear reminder that even women struggle with sexual sin. This is not just a guy problem because here we have Potiphar's wife trying to seduce this young man. She should have been satisfied with her husband, being his and finding delight in him. And instead, she stands for us as a stark reminder of the sexual temptations that women face. Last month, we learned that bookstores, which have been struggling for some time now, 
suddenly had a sharp increase in the number of customers that have come in over the last several months. Barnes & Noble reported to its stockholders that they had far better than expected sales figures over the summer for their stores. And they went out of the way to say, even in their report to their stockholders, that they believed this uptick, both in traffic in the stores and in money coming in, they believed this uptick was owing almost entirely to women coming in to buy one particular trilogy of books, The Fifty Shades of Grey, which is narrative porn for women. Um, It's more than just another trashy romance novel, though trashy romance novels are vile and we should stay away from those. But this book is, or series of books, is worse. This trilogy includes blatant descriptions of sexual sin, even abnormal sexual acts for the pleasure of women readers. And by all accounts, the U.S. population has received these books with great appetite, and now we can expect many, many more books like this to be coming in the future. We could talk about um, the recent movie, Magic Mike, featuring male strippers, very successful among women. And, And what's been absolutely shocking is to see how many people who call themselves Christians have openly said they're reading this book or going to that movie as if these things are harmless amusements. They are not harmless amusements. They are trips into the indulgence of immoral lust. So the point is this. Sexual temptation affects women as well as men. And so the lessons we're going to be learning from this passage are for all of us. Now, in our passage, we see the temptation presented forcefully. Forcefully. There is no flicking of the hair. There is no batting of the eyelashes. There is no other type of subtle flirtation mentioned in the passage. Instead, Potiphar's wife just comes right out and says what's on her mind. Now, maybe she had tried to be more subtle before this. Maybe she had tried to send signals to Joseph in the past, but Joseph has failed to respond. Maybe he didn't notice the signals. Maybe he did, and in his purity, chose to ignore them. Either way, Potiphar's wife will no longer beat around the bush. She approaches Joseph and says, in our language, have sex with me. She just blatantly says it. Now, think about the force of this temptation, especially on this young, single, healthy man. Joseph was simply going about his day. Joseph was serving his God. He was fulfilling his obligations, and he is blindsided by a temptation that would have been incredibly powerful for him. Certainly everything in his flesh would have said, yes, the pull on him to commit this sin would have been very strong. He did not have to woo this woman. He did not have to touch her heart before he touched her body. She was there, ready. To which I say to you, church, Are you prepared for such forceful temptations should they come your way? Failure to be prepared for such temptations can result in your relationships, your witness, your integrity being destroyed. You can wreak havoc on yourself. You can wreak havoc on others by not being ready for a sudden strong temptation to blindside you. 
Who knows what strong temptation Satan might bring your way tomorrow. All you have to do is put your signature on the form and you will become incredibly wealthy. Yes, it's unethical, but all you have to do is sign the paper and suddenly you will come into great wealth. And look at all the good you could do. You ready for a temptation like that? Maybe you're at school taking an exam. The teacher hands you your test and she doesn't realize that the answer key sheet was somehow stuck to the back of your test. No one else in the classroom notices. You have the answer key. You don't even have to pull it out because you can see the answers through your test sheet. It would be so easy to cheat. Think about what this would mean for your grades. You think about what this would mean for college and your transcript and how happy mom and dad will be with your perfect score. Or maybe you should miss one just so nobody gets suspicious. Are you prepared for a temptation like this? Are you prepared for a strong temptation that that blindsides you and hits you with an incredible force? We need to learn the lesson of the Boy Scouts. Be prepared. Because what seems so good and so easy in the moment can destroy so much and have such terrible aftershocks and effects. So how do we prepare? By cultivating a firm faith in Christ. We prepare through prayer and the Word and our church gatherings and Christian fellowship, all ultimately constantly teaching our hearts to trust Jesus above all. We're to pursue our ultimate and supreme joy in Christ so that we find such joy in our relationship with Christ that committing this sin against Him pains us. We love Christ. We trust Christ so much. We live so fully in His love that our consciences are too tender. We could not even live with ourselves if we were to do this thing against Him. We say with Joseph, how can I sin against my God? Know your God that well. Cultivate such a relationship with God that is that pure, that sweet, that intense that when this strong temptation blindsides you, it still is a stench in your nose because you love your God above all. Also, work to have a full knowledge of the vileness of sin so that you're not deceived. When this sin presents itself, it's such enticing, right? It's so attractive. It it looks so good, but it's poisonous, and you need to be prepared to know it's poisonous. Teach yourself not to be fooled. In the moment when the strong temptation hits, see it for what it is. See it as the snare for your soul that it is. See it as a dart from Satan, a guise of this world, a a mirage that looks like a sweet oasis, but in fact is fatal quicksand. Proverbs 6, 27, 28 Can man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes and not be burned? Can one walk on coals and his feet not be scorched? Church, sexual sin of every type is a fire, and those who play with fire will be burned. Proverbs 6, 32, 33, He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. 
Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his grace, disgrace, will not be wiped away. Remember the father's words to his son in Proverbs 7. Now look with me at Proverbs 7 real quickly. Let's, let's see that. Proverbs 7, where we have this father speaking to his son about this very issue. Son, don't be deceived. Be ready. Be prepared so that when that huge temptation comes your way, you see this sin for what it is. Don't be enticed by the seductive woman. See her for what she is. Look at Proverbs 7. You can, you can hear the earnestness in the father's voice. My son, keep my words. Treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandment and live. Keep my teaching is the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. In other words, son, what I'm telling you right now is extremely important. What I'm about to teach you is one of the most important lessons I will ever teach you. If you pay attention, this will save you from destruction. Verse 4. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. Call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice and I have seen among the simple and I have perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense. Listen to this young man, what happens to him. He's passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house. In the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows, so now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. And all at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O oh sons, listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Is the Bible pretty clear about this issue? Church, we have been warned. Do not be deceived. Do, be, do not be like an ox being led to the slaughter. When the temptation comes, pray that God will give you eyes to see it for what it is. Pray that He will spare you. 
For there, there is a mighty throng of people who have had their lives laid waste, their families broken apart, great harm, bitterness, anger resulting, all from sexual sin. Well, finally, back in Genesis 39, go back with me to Genesis 39. Note that the temptation is presented persistently. The temptation is presented forcefully, and it is also presented persistently. Potiphar's wife is not only forceful, but she will not give up easily. She will not take no for an answer. Look at verse 10. Verse 10. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Day after day, she continued to tempt Joseph. Now, we have to understand, in the ancient world, if you committed adultery with a man's wife, that man had the legal authority to kill you. So the penalty for this was death. And remember who this woman's husband was, Potiphar, probably the head of Pharaoh's security forces. I don't picture a puny man. I picture someone you don't want to mess with. And so not just the spiritual consequences, which would have been great, but not only are there the spiritual consequences to consider, but just the clear earthly consequences were were awful. And yet day after day after day, she was enticing. She was tempting. Come on. Come on, lie with me, Joseph. Think about how hard it must have been for Joseph to be in that house, caring for the affairs of his master, all the while trying to avoid his master's wife. Day in and day out, come lie with me, Joseph. Come on, my husband won't find out. Think about the battle between Joseph's flesh and his conscience that was bound to the God he loved. I do not, I do not think these were pleasant days in Joseph's life. In fact, this situation must have been unbearable. I mean, as a slave, it wasn't like he could choose not to show up for work. He was forcibly thrown into this lion's den of temptation day in, day out, trying to be faithful, knowing going to sleep at night, he's going to have to face the same temptation the very next day. Maybe you're in a situation like that. Day in and day out, you find yourself in surroundings full of temptation. If so, remember these words from 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. Listen, He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. And with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to to endure it. So we can't make the excuses. We can't say, God, it's your fault. You put me in this situation and I can't avoid it. I mean, I'm only so strong, you know. God says, I am always providing a way of escape. I am never tempting you beyond what you can bear if you will look to me. I will help you endure it. So here's Joseph day after day being tested in the fire God has already providentially put Joseph into slavery. He put Joseph in slavery and said, Joseph, will you trust me now? And then as if slavery wasn't enough, Joseph is put into the furnace of sexual temptation, made to bear the seduction of this woman day after day. Would Joseph still hold to his integrity? Would he still hold fast to his God? 
would he still believe that God's ways are worth the fight, worth the misery of this day-in, day-out battle? Joseph was put to the fire, and he came out pure. God gave Joseph a way of escape. It wasn't the way Joseph would have chosen. He finally escaped by going to prison. We may think that's a strange escape. Honestly, Joseph may very well have been happier in prison than he was working in that house, facing that temptation day in and day out. Better to be in prison with your integrity than to be out of prison without it. So Joseph's faith remained strong through the trial. God delivered him, and now, having been humbled, having been tested, having been proven, Joseph was ready to be used by God in a mighty, world-changing, life-saving, Christ-honoring way. The sufferings that Joseph endured were preparation for the great days of usefulness that were to come. Church, when temptations are persistent in your life, remember Joseph. Remember how God brought him through and how ultimately Joseph was exalted. We too are promised that if we hold fast to our integrity, that if we trust God when it is hard and when it hurts, we too will be made particularly useful to God. It is the holiest of men and women, those whose faith has been tested and tried and they've been found faithful. These are the greatest instruments in God's hands. The world will not prevail against such people as this. They will overcome the world. And they will know depths of joy, of peace, and contentment with God that this world knows nothing about. And God will often use them in the most incredible of ways. So next time we will learn from Joseph and his example some practical helps for fighting against sexual temptation. But tonight my exhortation is simply to trust Christ, to see sin for what it is, and to know that God richly blesses and uses those who go furthest in holiness. Before we leave, let me say this one more time. There is grace and there is forgiveness for sexual sins. If you will truly turn from those sins, if you will see them for the vile things they are, if you will resolve anew to follow Christ and rest in Him, then you can know that your sexual sins are forever gone. God does not hold them against you. He loves you, and you are precious in His sight. Live in Christ's love, because that ultimately is the key. Let's pray.